of the Trinity. And so what we've been doing over the past few weeks is uh, what's known officially as systematic theology. We're, we're looking at what the Bible says about different issues, such as what the Bible says about revelation, what the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about salvation, and thinking, how do we put that together into a systematic way of thinking about what God says? And we started out by thinking about how we ever know anything about God at all. And we said that the only way that we can know anything about God is if he reveals himself to us. And thus we began by thinking about the doctrine of revelation and thinking about how scripture is that source by which God reveals himself to us. Then last week we thought about how God reveals himself, or not last week, but the last time I spoke, we thought about how God reveals his incommunicable attributes, the things about God that set him apart from us that are not like us, such as his eternality, his infinity, his omnipotence, his self-existence, and those are the things that God can't share with us. But then there are things that are the communicable attributes of God that he can share with us, things like love and justice and wisdom, and we want to think about those as well. We also didn't get very much time to think about the Trinity last time. We mentioned it very briefly and said that God isn't divided into parts, but didn't elaborate further. And what I want to do is just begin by elaborating on that and thinking about God as Trinity and thinking then about how does that pose implications for, for how we live our lives and thinking about the communicable attributes then that are to be seen in us as well. So, as we think about God as Trinity, I don't know about you, but growing up, the Trinity to me was a great source of mystery and confusion. I understood that there was one God and three persons, but exactly how that was, I did not understand. And if you'd asked me honestly, uh, you know, deep down, I might have actually preferred that there wasn't a trinity, just because it was just such a source of confusion. I just didn't figure, I couldn't figure out how it exactly worked. And certainly there are many Christians who share that sense of confusion. Uh, But I, I think it's important for us to get this doctrine right, to understand it properly, because if we don't understand it properly, then we can fall into some very serious problems. There are some Christian doctrines, and if you get them a bit wrong, it's... It's not a massive issue. There are other Christian doctrines, like the doctrine of God, and if you get them wrong, then you actually end up in massive, serious error. And this is one of them, because when you think about the doctrine of the Trinity, and you think about how to put that together, how God is one and three at the same time, if you emphasize one or the other too much, then you end up going down some dodgy paths. So if you emphasize God's oneness so much, you can end up denying the deity of certain persons of God denying the deity of Jesus Christ, for example, uh, as some people do. Or if you want to emphasize the threeness so much, uh, then you end up posing three different gods, like the Mormons do. And so there's very dangerous errors on both sides, and we need to be really careful to think about what it means when the Bible says that God is both one and three, that God is this trinity. And tonight, I'm not going to be able to get rid of the sense of mystery around the idea of God as Trinity. It's not something that we can easily solve. But I do want it to become a source of joy for us rather than a source of confusion, because it's something which is something which should make us rejoice as we discover that God is this triune God. But first of all, we're going to begin with reading from the Bible to see how we arrive at this idea of the Trinity. And we begin with... One of the most foundational verses in the Bible, which is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and it very clearly establishes for us 
at the start of the Bible that God is one God. In Judaism, this is known as the Shema, because the first word in this is Shema, hear, O Israel. And they, would re they repeat this prayer regularly, every day, I believe. And so foundational in this text is the idea that there is one God, that, that the God that has been revealed to us in Scripture isn't like the, God of the gods of the nations, where there's lots of different gods, but he is one. And so it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it continues to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And as we ponder that, we need to remember the fact that the first Christians were, for the most part, Jews or God-fearing Gentiles that became part of Judaism. And that meant that they understood the gospel as the valid continuation of Israel's hopes rather than a replacement of everything that had gone before. They didn't consider this message of Christ, this gospel that they preached, to be something new, to be something different than what had gone before. It only emerged as a, a new religion, or it only separated itself as something distinct uh, through the process of persecution, as the Jews had to separate from the synagogues and so on. And that means that for the early Christians, they had a very keen sense of what's known as monotheism, one God. And they understood, therefore, that, that they were worshipping the one God and that whatever the Lord Jesus said was consistent with that idea that there was one God. And never do we get the idea that they're proposing more than one God. That would not be consistent with how they understood themselves as faithful Jews following what they saw to be the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. But, nevertheless, the way that the Lord Jesus taught about God meant that they could no longer think about God in the same way as they had thought about him previously. Because in Jesus Christ, the Son of God had been sent into the world by the Father, and having ascended into heaven, had sent his Holy Spirit into the world to dwell among them, and so the way that they thought about God had to change completely. And so we read these words in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, as the Lord Jesus is about to leave him, leave them. We read, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. <coughs> Forgive me. Now, there's much here that's very, very interesting. Notice that when they approach Jesus in verse 17, they worship him. This is very interesting because worship in the Bible is something which is only ever accorded to God. And when people try to worship angels or other majestic beings, they get roundly rebuked and told not to do that because you're only supposed to worship God. But Jesus doesn't chase them off and say, no, you can't do that. Jesus accepts this worship and the disciples give this worship precisely because they're recognizing that Jesus is the God whom they worshipped, the God of Israel's scriptures. But... Um, 
when the Lord Jesus speaks to them, he tells them to go and to make disciples. And the mark of these disciples is to be that they are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And it's important to notice here that it says that they are to be baptized, not in the names of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's only one singular name mentioned here precisely because there is only one God who is sending them out. And this God, then, that they worship is being named as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so at this point, we can say that very clearly from Scripture, the Bible teaches that there is one God, and this God is known to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But obviously we want to say more than that. We want to understand how can God be one and yet be three. And we need to reflect on the implications of that fact. Now, last time when we thought about God, we thought very much about what, what is God? And we identified several key attributes of God. And we said that God was the eternal, infinite, self-existing, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of all things. Taking that, if we say that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all God, that means that every single one of these attributes applies to each of the persons. God is not divided up between the persons so that the Son gets some attributes, the Spirit gets some attributes, and the Father gets some attributes. No, they are all God, and all the attributes apply equally to each of the persons. Each of them are fully God. But while it's important to affirm that each of the persons is fully God, it doesn't tell us very much about the distinctions between the persons. What can we say about what makes each of the persons distinct from each other? Because we want to affirm the unity, that they all are fully God. Uh, we want to think about the significance of these personal names. What distinguishes then the persons from one another are their eternal relations of origin. Now, if that sounds confusing, it will become very clear very, very shortly. You see, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's to speak about their relations to one another. And when we spoke last time, we said that when we talk about God, we talk about God analogically. In other words, we don't use words about God in a, in a word which exactly corresponds to our meanings of words in human senses, so that when we say that God is Father, we are not thereby supposed to think that God is Father in every sense in which we talk about human fathers. Rather, the language is analogical. It's calling God Father so that we would draw a similarity between what it means, between human fathers and God as the divine Father, so that we might think about that there's some similarity there, but not press it further than it's supposed to go. So then, when it says that God is the father of the son, what does that mean? Well, we're not to imagine that, therefore, God is, uh, you know, fathering a son in a human sense. That somehow he procreates and there's a mother involved somewhere. That's, that's not the idea in the Bible. Rather, the idea is that he is eternally the father of the son. And as fathers beget sons... So also the divine father, he begets his son. 
And because these persons are eternal persons, God is eternal, and each of them shares in God's eternality, then this this father-son relationship, it never has a beginning, it never has a starting point. And so we can say that God is eternally the father of the son. The nature of the son, then, is to be begotten, is to be fathered. To be a son is to have a particular relationship to a father. And so we can say of the son that he is eternally fathered or eternally begotten by the father. The nature of the spirit, too, is to be derived from the name that the spirit is given. Just as the father signifies that he's the father of the son and the son signifies that he's the son of the father, so the spirit signifies that he is breathed out by God. Now, this is interesting because the word spirit that we use doesn't normally carry the connotation of breath, but in Hebrew and Greek, the word does often carry the connotation of breath. It has a bit of an inclination, a bit of that association in English when we think about words like respiration. The spur in respiration means you know, the process of breathing, and we sometimes talk about expiration, breathing out. Uh, and so when we talk about God as the spirit, it means that he is the one who is breathed out by the Father and through the Son. Now, the point of saying all this is that this is the way that God has revealed himself, that there are these particular relations between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These are eternal relations, and that these relations constitute their relationship to one another within the Trinity. And each person is fully God and fully possesses all the attributes of God, but does so in a manner appropriate to their persons. Now that all sounds very complicated, but the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 5, for example, that as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The point there is that both the Father and the Son have life in themselves. They've got this eternal life, but the Father possesses it as the source, and as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So they both possess the attribute of God, but do so in a manner appropriate to their persons. Now then, if that's all been very complicated, bear with me, because what we discover is that God reveals himself in this way, not to give us uh, a puzzle to, to stew over, but to give us something to rejoice over. And I want to think about why it's good that we have a Trinitarian God. And the first point that I would make is that if God were not a Trinity, if God were a monadic God, such as you have in Islam, for example, then he wouldn't be an eternally loving God. So in Islam, you've got this God who is, who is singular, who is one, uh, and there are no persons in him. And then you've got to ask the question, well, who did he love before he made humanity? Oh, well, there's no one to love. And that puts you in a bit of a fix, because if you want to then say that God is an eternally loving being and he's got nobody else to love then actually God needs us for his self-actualization. God needs us in order to actually be loving, otherwise he can't actually be loving. And this is why the, the doctrine of the Trinity is so important, because the biblical portrayal of God is that God is love, 
And his creation of us is not because he needs us in order to become loving, but his creation of us is an outflow of the love that he has already enjoyed in himself for all eternity. And because God is eternally the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who love one another, then creation and redemption are not to be understood as a way in which God solves his loneliness or the way in which God fulfills his destiny, but are to be understood as the outflow, the overflow of God's love that he has within himself. The other reason why it's so good to affirm God as the Trinitarian God is because our salvation has a Trinitarian shape. And when I talk about salvation, I'm not, I'm not talking about salvation narrowly in the sense of escaping judgment. Because in the Bible, salvation is all that God does for us to rescue us from the ruin and misery caused by sin. It's God's process of restoring us and bringing us to our destiny, giving us all that he wants for us. And so as we think about salvation in the Bible and think about what God does to achieve that, we discover that that it describes God as the as Father, and as such, He is the source of the 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 plan of redemption. He is the one who sends the Son into the world to accomplish salvation for us. And so, the Father, He so loves the world that is lost in sin and ruined in its misery. He so loves that world that He gives His own dearly loved son so as to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to him precisely because he wants these sinners to be enfolded into the life of God himself enfolded into the love of God and the son then because he is the one who eternally dwells in the love of the father he shares in the father's love for us and so wants to accomplish the father's plan of redemption for us and so comes into the world to redeem us and so dying on the cross he pays the debt that we owed so that rescuing us from our sin and condemnation freeing us from the curse of the law he would share his own sonship with us so that we would be loved in the same way as he love is loved by the father so that we might receive the adoption as sons so that we might be adopted as sons the coming of the spirit then is god's second great redemptive work not only does he give his son but he gives his holy spirit to apply the work of the son to us and so the spirit breathes his life into us so that we might become the adopted sons of God. That same spirit that dwells in the Father and Son and communicates the love of the Father and Son to one another then comes to dwell in us, to make us loved and to give us the life of God himself. And just as God breathed into Adam the breath of life and Adam became a living soul, a living being, so also God by his spirit breathes new life into sinners so that they come alive. And so that they become sharers in the life of the age to come. And so that actually they become participants in the divine life itself. So that the life that we enjoy now is the life that is communicated to us by the Spirit, which is the life of God. 
And so when we talk about eternal life, we're not just talking about something, some abstract thing, but we're talking about God's life breathed into us by the Holy Spirit. And the Christian experience then is the one in which we share in God's life and love as he invites us to know him and to dwell in the communion of the Father and Son and Spirit. That then is why it's good to believe in a Trinitarian God, because our salvation is wrapped up with who God is as Trinity. There is no way of understanding what the Bible means by salvation unless you believe that God is the triune God. And this then not only shapes our experience as we enter into communion with the triune God, but it shapes our worship as well. Because it means that we worship this God who is Father and Son and Spirit. And it saves us from lopsidedness in worship. Because we realize that salvation is accomplished by all the persons of the Trinity. Salvation isn't the province of just one person of the Trinity. Salvation is the work of the undivided Trinity. And so the normal pattern of worship in scripture is to praise the Father through the Son and the Spirit. And so this... This is the way that we ought to worship God and praise him for what he has done as we recognize that that all that God has done for us is from the Father as the source, through the Son, in the Spirit, that this is how God works to save us and bring us into communion with himself. Now, having established that salvation is about being enfolded into the life of God himself, sharing God's own life and love, This then provides the basis for thinking about the communicable attributes of God. Because if, as Peter says, we've become partakers or sharers in the divine nature, that means not, of course, that we we then start to partake in the incommunicable attributes of God, because there's always that creator-creature distinction. We We can never become what God is in his incommunicable nature. But it does mean that we do start to take on a likeness of God and become like him in his communicable attributes. And as you read the letter of 1 John, you see this repeated emphasis that if we claim to share in God's life and God's love, and that love has to be seen in our lives. If we claim to be sharers in God's life, then we need to share in God's character as well. And so it's not enough to just go around and say, oh, God lives in me, I've received eternal life. Rather, John says, it's the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And so there needs to be a family likeness. We need to obey God if we want to actually demonstrate our true sonship, our true relationship to God. But we mustn't then think that that salvation is then merely just keeping the right commands. Because then John immediately goes on to say, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And so these are two parallel tracks. On the one hand, he's saying, you know who a true believer is because they actually keep God's commands. And the other side, on the other side, he's saying, you know that we are truly born of God because actually we know it through the spirit that he's given to us. And it's the spirit then that actually produces this change in us where we actually want to obey God. And the two go hand in hand. The spirit produces the change. And then the outcome of that change is that we actually do live lives which are like our father in heaven. Now, as we then think about these attributes of God that we should actually model, there's, there's many that we can, can, could consider. And you'll be relieved to know that I'm not going to go through all of them um, 
I will probably take another 12 minutes or so. Uh, and so what I want to do is think about some of these attributes. There's many of them. We could think about God's knowledge, God's wisdom, truthfulness, faithfulness, love, goodness, grace, mercy, patience, holiness, justice, and power as just some of the things that God communicates to us, that God shares with us to make us like himself. But rather than thinking about each of these individually, I thought that we could maybe break it down into God's ways of thinking, God's ways of feeling, and God's ways of acting. Now, that's not a hard and fast distinction because some of them go through all three categories. Love, for example, try and fit that into one category and it just doesn't work. Um, but still, I, I'll, I'll treat them in these three categories for the sake of simplicity. And as we think about them, then we need to think, of well, how is this seen in God? And then how ought that to be seen in our lives as well? First of all, we think about how God thinks. And God, because he is God, he has perfect knowledge of everything. Psalm 147 says that God's knowledge, his understanding has no limits. He understands how everything fits together. He understands how everything works. He understands how everything has led up to this point. He understands how everything is going to work out in the future. He understands every thought, every secret, every intention. And we refer to this as God's omniscience, his all knowledge. And obviously in that sense, God's knowledge cannot be shared with us. We cannot know everything like God knows, simply because our, our minds aren't fit for that task. And yet there is a sense in which our knowledge is a subset of God's knowledge. God knows everything, and we know a little bit of what God knows. Johannes Kepler was a German mathematician, and he said that our responsibility is to think God's thoughts after him. And I think that's a lovely way of putting it, that we actually think God's thoughts after him and so mirror the way in which he thinks and knows. And God has designed us then as thinking, rational creatures who want to understand things, who want to think, who want to know things so that we use our minds to glorify God. There's things, of course, that we can't know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there's secret things that belong to God. Uh, we can't know those, but there are things that he has revealed, and he has revealed those things to us through his instruction, his law. His word that he has revealed to us gives us what we need to know. And that then has to be the central uh, focus of our knowledge. If we are truly to understand anything rightly, then we need to understand what God has said to us in Scripture. And reading and learning God's word then is the foundation for understanding anything rightly. Because it reveals God's plan of redemption. It reveals what God values. It reveals what God's standards are so that we can actually order our lives according to God's instructions. But related to God's knowledge is this idea of God's wisdom. Wisdom is very similar in many respects to knowledge, but it's got the, the idea of applied knowledge. It's when you seek to take what you know and put it into practice. It's, it's skillful, masterful knowledge. And so Proverbs describes God using his masterful, skillful knowledge to create the world. He uses his perfect wisdom to lay the foundations of the earth. And so wisdom is God's master plan for how he actually puts the world together. It's how the world actually works. And so the Bible then consistently emphasizes the importance of acquiring wisdom. And the entire book of Proverbs, it revolves around this idea of there is nothing more important than to acquire wisdom. That is, we want to map our lives 
onto the way that the world actually works. God has designed it in a particular way, and if we want to work with the grain of the way that God has made the world, then we need to listen to his instructions rather than working against the grain, which is going to cause friction and cause problems, as Proverbs describes. And so the writer of Proverbs says, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. But the book also establishes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where wisdom starts. We revere God and treat God's priorities, God's values as the most important things as you start to try and understand how the world actually works. And that comes to fulfillment in the present age when Paul explains to the Colossians that to truly have knowledge and wisdom is to know Jesus Christ. Because you can't understand what God's doing in redemptive history. You can't understand the the purpose of life, the purpose of this world, or how it's all heading towards a consummation, unless you know Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul then can say that true knowledge and wisdom is hidden in him. And to know him is to know the one who rules the universe and who works everything according to his will, and the one who will bring everything under his authority. And our responsibility then as Christians is to deliberately conform our thinking to the way that God thinks. As Paul puts it in those verses in 2 Corinthians that we've been thinking about recently, Paul wants us to take, every, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that's our responsibility as Christians, to conform our thinking to God's thinking. We also want to feel like God feels, not just to think the way he thinks, but to feel the way he feels. Now, last time I said that God was impassable. That means he doesn't experience emotions the way that we experience emotions. The way that we experience emotions is kind of ebb and flow. Sometimes we feel happy, sometimes we feel sad, sometimes we feel angry, sometimes we feel at peace. And God doesn't work like that at all. God experienced the fullness of these emotions, if we want to ascribe that to God, in its fullness at all times and in every place, because he doesn't change. He, he isn't affected the way that we are by circumstances. God transcends that. Nevertheless, it's important to affirm that in the Bible, God does speak of God becoming angry or being grieved or rejoicing or being filled with compassion. And again, the key here is to understand that when the Bible speaks in these ways, We are not to take that language and read it back and say that this is in essence who God is. Because then you're you're opening some dangerous cans of worms. Because what the Bible is doing is it's using analogical language. It's using the language of human beings in order to help us to understand God. The same way the Bible talks about God's hands and God's feet. It so describes him as feeling like us to help us understand what God is like. And so it's important to, to understand that. Um, the Bible portrays God having many emotional states. Uh, and I just want to think about his love and compassion here. And as I said, you'll have to bear with me for putting love in here, because really in the Bible, love is something which covers God's thoughts and his feelings and his actions. But I'll put it here, because this is how we often think about love. And the Bible fundamentally describes God as love. As as John Pitt says, we thought about God is love. This love is central to who God is as the triune God. In 1 John 3.34, or sorry, John 3.34, John says, 
The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. That is, God gives the Spirit to the Son without limit. And the Father loves the Son and has placed everything into his hands. And when we think about this as the model of love, we see that the way that the Father loves the Son is through imparting his Spirit to the Son. And so communicating all of himself to the Son, placing everything into his hands. And this divine communication of the Father to the Son through the Spirit is then the pattern of biblical love. The sharing of who you are with another person so that their joy would be full. This then becomes the pattern for how we ought to love one another as God has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. So also we are called to give ourselves sacrificially to one another and to seek one another's good and ultimate joy. Compassion, it flows from love. But I think compassion is different from love insofar as love doesn't necessarily have any... Um, change when it encounters the object of love it loves regardless of the object but compassion is when you see someone and you're moved to feel something because of the condition that they are in and the wonderful thing about God is that he reveals himself as a God of compassion again come to these foundational texts who is God Exodus 34 God says he's the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, as Brian reminded us in prayer, that God is this compassionate God who feels for his people. And this is exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? When he saw those who were in need, he was filled with compassion for them when he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And this then becomes the model for us, does it not, when Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we ought to be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So just as God feels for us, feels what we are going through, feels for us in our misery, so also we are called on to feel the pain of other brothers and sisters especially and to show to one another the kindness that God has shown towards us. We are then called upon to imitate how God feels quick caveat though I was thinking about God's anger and I was like what about God's anger are we called upon to imitate God's anger and I had a look at various passages in the Bible which spoke about anger and consistently in the New Testament the scripture tells us not to have wrath or anger to put away wrath and anger because these things aren't fitting for Christians and the reason why it does so is because it tells us that we ought to give such feelings to God that God is the God of vengeance, God is the God of wrath, and we ought to let him deal with those things. And so, yes, we are called to, called to feel as God feels, and we ought to then feel, to feel a sense of antipathy. We ought to feel aggrieved by the sin and injustice that wrecks our world. But we are not to feel angry towards other people. We are to give those feelings to God. Because God is the one who will actually deal with them. God is the one who will intervene in our world. But that's just an aside. Finally, 
God calls us to act as he acts. <clears throat> and obviously we've thought of love. Love is an act. Love is what we do when we give ourselves to someone in order to seek their good and well-being. But there are other characteristics of God that we are called upon to model in actions. And I could have chosen many of them, but I've chosen justice here. God is spoken of in the Bible as a God of justice. Psalm 97 describes the Lord's throne and says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And sometimes we think about justice and we think about punishment. Uh, we think about the criminal justice system. But this word judgment or justice in the Old Testament is not primarily about punishment. It's about doing what is right. And so when we look at Psalm 37, 28, we read that the Lord loves justice. And what does he do because he loves justice? Well, it, we read that he, he does um, good for his beloved children. He does not forsake his beloved ones. And this is a result of God's justice, is doing what is right. And so because of that, God expects his people to be people of justice, who do what's right. And so when we look at God choosing Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, God says, I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. They are to do what is right. And this is consistently carried throughout the Bible, where we're expected to live in such a way as to do what is right and to correct the injustice that we see in the world around us. This then means that Christians are actually called upon to do good in the world. Um, we're not just called upon to preach the gospel, that is fundamental to our calling. But we are also called upon to do good, so that others would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so this is part and parcel of what it means to mirror the character of God as the one who does what is right. Now as we've reflected on the character of God and reflected on who he is, we discovered that God is this Trinitarian God who is Father and Son and Spirit. And as such, he's the eternal source of love. And salvation, then, is about being enfolded into the life and love of the triune God himself. And through the work of the Son and the Spirit in redemption, the Father welcomes us into this divine life where we get adopted as sons and get to share in God's own life, the eternal life that has eternally dwelt in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as that life dwells in us and as we share in God's own life, we become like God. There are ways, of course, that we can't become like God, ways that mark God out as distinct from us. But sharing in God's life means that we do inevitably become like our Father in ways that change the ways that we think, the ways that we feel, and the ways that we act. And so may God help us day by day to seek to become more like our Father in heaven and to rejoice day by day in every way in which we see in ourselves and in each other, the work of the triune God by which he makes us more like himself. Let's close and pray. Father, as we approach you through the Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace that has welcomed us into fellowship with you. What a privilege that is.
to be able to say that in your son we are as loved as he is.